Uh, let's bow together in prayer. We're coming to a Father's Day sermon today. We're taking a break from the series that we've been on on, on attributes of God, who is this God we serve. And today we're just going to talk particularly to dads. But the rest of you can listen in as well. So, Father, would you feed each of us now as we come to your word? Feed our very souls from your word. Whether we're dads or we're not dads, Feed our souls, for we need to hear from you. We thank you in advance for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I came across a little two-part quiz that I want to uh, administer to you all this morning, particularly to you dads, uh, and I know you're tested enough in life, but I think you might appreciate where this little two-part quiz goes and what it tends to show us. First of all, things that are so very important in our world. A little part one of the quiz on that. Can you name the five wealthiest people in the world? Can you name the top five or most recent winners of the Heisman Trophy? Can you name the five recent Miss America winners? Can you name the five people most recently who have won either Nobel Peace Prizes or Pulitzers? Can you name five academic award winners, uh, I'm sorry, Academy Award winners for Best Actor, Best Actress? These are things that are really big deals. Can you name the last five World Series champions? The last five Super Bowl champions? I mean, no one would ever want to miss Super Bowl or World Series playoffs, right? Well, some of you don't care too much about those things. You're getting the point, though. The stuff that our world thinks is so very, very important, in a few years, we kind of forget about it. Awards tarnish. Applause dies. Achievements are forgotten. Accolades and awards certificates are buried with their owners. A few years later, you can't even remember who won the Super Bowl that you were so passionate about a few years ago. Isn't that interesting? Ready for part two of the quiz? This part two will really help clarify the quiet game changers of our worlds. Give hope to some of us dads that are never going to win a Heisman or a World Series or whatever. Here's part two. List a couple of teachers who really aided you in your journey in school. I'll bet every one of us can think back to a teacher or two who made a difference. Name three friends who stuck with you and were faithful through a difficult time. People who you knew would be there for you. Name a few trusted friends who have taught you something really worthwhile about life. Think of a few people who make you feel appreciated and special. Think of a few people that you enjoy spending time with and name a few heroes or, uh, whose stories have inspired you in life. Part two is probably a lot easier than part one of the quiz. And while you might not get everything in part two, those are the people that rock your world and continue to rock your world. 
This two-part quiz teaches us something. It teaches us something about people who make a difference in our lives. And interestingly, it's not always about the credibility, or I'm sorry, the, the credentials or the money or the awards. It tends to be people who invest in us and care and take time with us. Some of us dads feel like we just don't have a whole lot to bring to the table and we don't even know how to be a good dad. But one thing's clear, we can take time with the children that God has blessed us with. In the next 30 minutes, I want to demonstrate to you that kids of all, age, of all ages needs dads who take time. They don't have to even be good. They just need to show up. I want to illustrate this through the life of a man who really had it all. I mean, he had the accolades, he had the awards, he had the power, he had the money, he had the women, he had it all. And he came up feeling like his life was very empty. I want to take a few minutes to review the first two chapters of a book written by King Solomon, who's an old man by this point. He's reflecting back on his life. He had beautiful wives. He had wisdom and brilliance. He, every, he had the golden touch. Everything this guy touched in life, gold. He had power. He was king. He reigned. And yet he comes away from all of that with all of his credentials and his money and his awards. He comes away from that feeling like not only his life, but the lives of his children were miserable. Toward the end of his life, God led him to write a book that is now in the Bible. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. Some Christians who have been around the faith for a while think that Ecclesiastes is just this philosophical book that's hard to understand. You know, like next to Revelation, it might be the next most difficult book in the Bible to understand. Not so. I would hope that every one of us, even those who are not dads today, will gain a new appreciation for this book and you'll go, Huh, that guy had something to say about life. I want to begin in the very first chapter. What we're going to do is we're just going to kind of survey the first two chapters. But I want to begin in chapter 1 with some of the opening verses where Solomon shares his frustration. Ever been frustrated in life? <laughs> Duh. Yeah. Verse 2 and verse 3. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. He calls himself the teacher in this book because he's the one with all the wisdom and the smarts and all of that. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does a man gain from all of his labors at which he toils under the sun? Good question. Actually, Solomon has tried just about everything that can be tried in life. More on that in a moment, what he tried. A lot of people wish that they had the ability to try what he did. Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. He uses the word four times. Actually, the word meaningless, he uses about 30 times in this book. There's only 12 chapters. You get the overall theme. The guy is like depressed. had a Bible college professor who actually talked about this word meaningless and trying to bring it down to life and what it really means, and he described it as soap bubbles. 
you know, as a kid, come on, even some of us that aren't kids, we like, you have those little bottles of soapy water and you put your stick in it that's got the hole in the end and you put it, and you blow and out come those cool bubbles and they look so cool and you just pop. As soon as you touch it, it pops. He said, that's life. You go after something and you really want it and you finally achieve it and pop, it's gone. It's meaningless. There's nothing there. It's soap bubbles. It vaporizes before you. It's gone. Solomon, who had tried so much in life, concludes, it's all meaningless. Every time you get to something that you thought was going to be meaningful, it got pop and it's gone. Sometimes the pop takes a little longer than others. But eventually you come to the realization, is it really worth it? Who cares? Is it going to last? If you look at the end of this, you'll note, the end of these couple verses, you'll notice it says, what does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Please key in on that. In this book, Solomon uses that term about 25 times. Under the sun, what's he talking about? He's talking about life down here on planet Earth under the sun as though you can't see anything beyond the sun. So you're living life out for what it is, day to day, sunrises, sunsets, you're living it out, you're doing what you can, you're trying to have a great life. And Solomon has concluded, no matter what he does, no matter what accomplishments he has, no matter what successes he has, down here under the sun, it is all meaningless. What he's really implying is maybe we need to live for something over the sun. Something eternal. Something that will last. Something bigger than your life or my life. So when things in life don't work out, we're not left depressed and feeling everything is meaningless. Solomon has talked about his frustration, how everything is meaningless down here under the sun. Now, starting in the rest of chapter 1 through chapter 2, he shares six experiments with stuff in life. Six things that this wealthy, brilliant, powerful man is able to do at levels that you and I could never do. And he still concludes it's all meaningless. For example, experiment number one, verses 12, 13, and 14, he tried knowledge. He was brilliant. Again, calling himself the teacher, he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God's laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done down here under the sun, and all of them are meaningless. They're like chasing after the wind. Along with being down here under the sun, now he adds a second metaphor, chasing after the wind. Can you chase the wind and either catch it, beat it, or grab it? You can't. How would you know if you even had it? It's wind. Solomon says, I pursued knowledge. Please understand, he didn't just get a college degree. His pursuit of knowledge was something that's far beyond all of us. 
Listen to the words of 1 Kings chapter 4 describing it. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs. You got about 20% of those in the book of Proverbs that's in the Bible that he wrote. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs. He wrote songs 1,005. He described plant life. He taught about animals, birds, reptiles, fish. Men from all nations on earth came to listen to Solomon's knowledge. This guy was brilliant. He could describe things that people hadn't even thought about. With all of this knowledge, he concludes, so? People wish they were smart like me, but what does it get you? It's meaningless. If you've seen those charts about the increase of knowledge in the last hundred years, it's unbelievable. It's like humanity's going on century after century, growing in their knowledge rate little by little like little, and then the last hundred years, all of a sudden, the knowledge rate went zoom. If the answers to life were in knowledge, the last hundred years has an edge over all the poor suckers before that. And if the answer's in knowledge, a hundred or two hundred years from now, we're the suckers, because we don't have as much as they did. Solomon concludes with all of his knowledge in his days, it's still meaningless. And eventually people start asking the questions, is it worth it? Who cares? What difference does it make? Experiment number one, knowledge. Solomon concludes, the answer is not in knowledge. Oh, knowledge might help here and there, for sure. But the answer to life is not in knowledge. If it was, as smart as we are today, as much as we've learned in the last hundred years over previous centuries, we would not still be asking the questions, why am I here? What am I here for? What makes life work? We would have the answers to those things if it was in knowledge. It's not in knowledge. You'll never be able to learn enough to learn your way out of the problems of humanity. The second experiment that he experimented with was wisdom. And people say, well, knowledge, okay, I get that. What, what, what do you mean by wisdom? Isn't that the same? It's not the same thing. Knowledge is knowing all this stuff about plants and animals and explaining life. And, but wisdom is the ability to take that knowledge and apply it to life so it makes a difference in your life. What we know in this experiment, verses 16, 17, and 18 of chapter 1, Solomon said, I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. By the way, his father was David, a pretty wise man. He goes on, he says, I have experienced much wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of that wisdom and also the madness and folly. And I learned that this too was just chasing the wind. Even wisdom, back at the beginning of being king, God said to Solomon, just ask me for anything that you want, and I will give it to you. And even at that point, Solomon had the wisdom to say to God, you know, I could ask for riches, money, whatever. Uh, yeah. I'm going to ask God for a wise heart to rule the people well. And God was so pleased that Solomon asked for that. And God said, not only will I give you a wise heart, he said in 1 Kings chapter 3, God's response was, I will do what you have asked. I will give you wisdom and a discerning heart so that there will never, there has never been anyone like you, nor will there ever 
be a king like you again. Apparently, Solomon had excessive wisdom more than past or future people. And God gave Solomon wisdom, 1 Kings 4, and great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sands of the sea. So his wisdom was like the sands of the sea. And at the conclusion of that, Solomon says, it's meaningless. 1 Kings 4 went on and Solomon said, uh, uh, Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of the men of the east and greater than the wisdom of Egypt. And he was wiser than any other man and his fame spread across all the nations. This guy was smart and he was wise. You ever met a college professor that was smart in his area or her area of work and they don't even know how to balance their checkbook? Yeah. The difference between knowledge and wisdom is significant. He had them both and he's still concluding they're not scratching the itch of my soul. I got them more than anybody else has had it in the past. Now, a lot of people would say, well, I'd love to be in his position to at least try. For the years of humanity, people have been trying to do these things. These first two and the next four that are coming. And they keep trying and trying, and it always leaves the same thing. Meaninglessness, despair, depression. Why am I here? Is this worth it? His third experiment was in the area of pleasure. Some people call it hedonism, not heathenism, a heathen, a hedonism, pursuit of pleasure. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he said this, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is really good. That also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, he said, is foolish. What? And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly and all craziness and fun stuff in life. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men under the heavens during the days of their lives. But he concludes it's meaningless. Humor, wine, entertainment, fun. By the way, some of you that know the life of Solomon know he had a whole bunch of wives. 1 Kings 11 says he has 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. Some people read the life of Solomon and say, this guy had it all. I wish I could at least have a shot at it. I'll bet I wouldn't be as depressed or unhappy or meaningless as his life was. Oh, yeah? You are making the same mistake every human being has made for generations in that they're looking for stuff under the sun. The answers to life here on earth are not under the sun. It's over the sun. His fourth attempt was in the area of accomplishments. This man was accomplished beyond our understanding. He says in chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs 
to water groves of flourishing trees. And that doesn't begin to describe what this man built. We know from secular history, his buildings were counted among the seven ancient wonders of the world. Incredible. And he comes away from it all saying, really, who cares? Didn't scratch the itches of his soul. His fifth experiment was with money. He says in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, I bought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in my house. I also own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. That would include David. He said, I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings, of provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well and the delights of a man's heart. Historians believe in his day, 3,000 years ago, his annual income was in excess of $25 million. Now, that's a lot of money. You know, you look at that today and say, but that, you know, there, there are baseball players that make that today. You got to factor in 3,000 years of inflation. We're at least in the billion dollars category, 100 billions. It's huge, his income, his wealth. And this is where people say, boy, I wish I had a shot at that. You know, I'd be happy. Solomon is doing these experiments and he's concluding and writing his pages of sacred Bible. It's meaningless because I'm living for stuff here under the sun. Experiment number six, he tried fame and popularity. Chapter two, verse nine, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Well, no wonder, education, wisdom, pleasure, accomplishments, wealth. Yeah, everybody thinks, oh, like Solomon. I mean, he's, he becomes the poster child for success. But what Solomon concludes with these six experiments not any one of the six and not the sum total of the six really could scratch the itch in his heart. He realized he was living down here for what was under the sun. And he knew that somehow when he died, all of his stuff would pass on to someone else. Go ahead and read the Bible about what happened with his son, King Rehoboam. It's not pretty. And if all you live for is to pass it on to your kids, and their lives are not pretty, wouldn't you just ask the question, where's the meaning? Why are we here? What are we here to do? This isn't working. Some dads today are running their own experiments. They're trying the financial thing. They're trying the beauty thing either with their wife or someone on the side. They try building a career. They try, you know, building themselves and their body and then their health fails anyhow. Happens to all of us. Yeah, even those of us that are so, so handsome and we know it, yeah. We're not so handsome after a while. So many of us try the experiment of just taking the circumstances that stink and trying to turn them into something that's at least tolerable. We're living our lives here as though we're just under the sun. 
Is there a better way to live? Is there a better way to live for the sake of our kids? Because if we don't get it right, how are our kids going to see an example of how to live right so that they don't repeat the same mistake that humanity keeps making, running their own experiments? How do we fix this? When Solomon writes his book, he is actually frustrated and he is depressed. He has experimented with the best of the best out of being a wealthy, powerful man, a man of influence, and he still can't pull it off. He concludes. His conclusion is in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. He saw it, he wanted it, he took it, he got it. I refused my heart no pleasure. If my heart wanted it, I got it. My heart to look, took delight in all my work, and this was the reward of my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was soap bubbles. Touch it and it's gone. Meaningless. Chasing after the wing, the wind. Nothing was gained down here under the sun. Nothing was gained. The rest of us would say, how can your hands be so full and yet be so empty at the same time? Wish I had a little bit of that. I'd be happy. This is exactly why people do experiments, because they think that's where happiness is. You experiment with what's under the sun, and you try to get your share or more. People outside of the United States of America still look at us and wonder why we want more and we crave more. And they keep saying, how much is enough? And we keep saying, obviously, a little bit more yet. But there is a different way to live than simply living for what's under the sun. There is a different way to live to show our younger our teenage and our adult age children, how to live. There is a God who is coming to the center of our universe here under the sun. His name is Jesus. He came to fill a deep, soul, a deep hole in our souls that can only be filled by Him. God created us with a longing for Him, and we're trying to stuff stuff down here under the sun into a hole that's shaped for God. And the hole's not filling. So we keep coming away saying, is it worth it? The world around us is suffering from this living under the sun. Actually, generation after generation continues to perpetuate the definition of insanity. You remember that, don't you? Repeat, repeating the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. Dads, are you, repeat, or are you repeating the experiments of past generations or are you living a different kind of life before your kids? Several years ago, I read a book by Christian apologetic expert Josh McDowell. The book's called The Dad Difference. Part of the book was written on Josh's study of trying to figure out what dads and Christian families, what in the world are doing today, trying to sort out some things. And his studies at that time concluded 
that the average teenager in our church today in a Christian home spends about two minutes a day in meaningful conversation with their dad. Dads, this challenges us to show up into the lives of our kids, even if we do not know what we're doing or how to be a good dad. Show up. McDowell says uh, 25% of the teens in our churches today have never had a meaningful conversation with their father centered on an issue of interest to the teen. If we just show up and we're interested, we become one of those people that this guy cares about me. He's my dad, but he loves me. I know he's got a lot going on. I know he's not perfect. But he shows up. Today's sermon is a calling for imperfect dads who are willing to admit that they're imperfect. They don't know how to be a grad, but they keep showing up consistently and prayerfully. They surrender to God on a regular basis. They humble themselves before God, and they say, God, I don't know how to do this, but God, I really believe if you lead me, you will not lead me to mess up my kids. My dad was quite imperfect. He worked hard. Probably too hard. He's been in heaven now for about 12 years. A lot of times on holidays I think about him, kind of miss, miss him, you know, old thing. I often think of him on Father's Day, each Father's Day. He was certainly not perfect at all, but he loved God and he pursued God, and he was honest to a fault. He loved my mom, and certainly she was imperfect. He loved my sister and me, and we were certainly imperfect. In fact, a lot of the times we weren't even good. But he kept showing up. He didn't make all my games, and he didn't always spend the time I'm sure he wished he would have spent with me, but he cared. And I know that my dad was proud of me, and he loved me, and he was always willing to talk to me, even if I wasn't willing to hear what he said. There were times when dad struggled with the issues of living under the sun. What dad doesn't? But he kept coming back and showing up. So dads, what is it going to be? Are you going to live under the sun and keep trying various experiments and try to plug the holes in your soul? And at the end of life, you look back with depression and discouragement and you say, was it really worth it? As opposed to keep showing up and God, I don't know how to do this and just lead me. I know you will not lead me to mess up my kids. Not an easy day to be a dad. This is a challenge to live differently than the people who are most gifted and have the most in life and who are concluding it's not worth it. 
to live above the sun, S-U-N, to live for the sun, S-O-N. And it will all begin at a moment when you come in your spiritual life to the point of saying, God, I cannot save myself. I need a Savior. And I believe you loved me enough to make me your child. You sent your son and you punished him for my sin so I could be with you, my heavenly Father, forever. You will not open the door to heaven through your good deeds. You are kept out by your sin. God is holy and will not allow sin in his presence. He's made a way for you to have your sin forgiven. He loved you to the point he punished his own son, Jesus, for your sin. We call this the good news, the gospel. And we believe based on what the Bible says that if you will come to the Father and just say, forgive my sins based on what Jesus experienced for me, my punishment, your sin will be forgiven. And you will have a perfect father. Dad, you'll never be a perfect father. Don't even go there. But you can be a father that is imperfect, that shows up and is surrendered to God. To your amazement, God will use you. You see, God placed those children under your care and under your authority, and he doesn't make a mistake. They don't need Joe Smith down the street, whoever that is, that's better than you, as you figure. They need you, an imperfect dad, Showing up, surrender to God, and God will not lead you to mess up the lives of your kids. Dads, let's show up. Let's not live experimenting under the sun. Father, would you take these thoughts in your wisdom, your tremendous wisdom, you had this very wise and resourced man share these reflections after trying so many experiments, we can now skip the experiments and we can run directly to the cross for you, for your help. Help us for we as dads, we believe we're in a tough day. We need divine help to do the job you've given us. Help us to show up even when it's uncomfortable, even when we don't know how to work or lead or talk or whatever and simply work through us through love through care through showing up thank you in jesus name amen